Growing up uh, in the church, I grew up quite afraid of hell. Uh, as a kid, I heard many descriptors of hell, heard many things about hell, uh, things like it's eternal fire and the worm never dies and people have like wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I didn't really even know what that was, but it sounded horrible. And I was scared of hell. In fact, uh, there was uh, one time I went to a thing. It was kind of a live theatrical drama that a church put on. And uh, the whole purpose of this event was literally to, uh, to scare the hell out of you. They showed you all these life experiences that caused death. And at the end, they took you uh, from this point where all these people had died, and then they showed you what hell was like, and you're walking through this dark area, and like hands are like popping out, and it was like a horrifying experience. And I remember from a very young age, knowing full well, I was scared of hell. I was scared of it. I didn't want to go there. I didn't want anything to do with it. And I, I absolutely just dreaded the fact. And it was kind of one of those things like every night before I went to sleep, I was like, God, forgive me for all of the sins that I committed today. I don't know what they are, but if I die tonight, Lord, I don't want to be in hell. So please just forgive all of the ones that I committed on purpose and the ones I have no idea I committed and the ones I even thought about committing. Like I remember as a kid being terrified of hell. The church did a great job of scaring the hell right out of me. But the problem with that element of fear is that it, it leads us to a point where we can behave for a little while, but it doesn't actually bring lasting, lasting change. And I think for a lot of us, the subject of hell is one we just don't like to talk about. I mean, is hell a real place? Does it exist? And, and if so, what is it really about? And for many people... This is like one of the big things as to why they don't want to believe in God or can't believe in God because it's such a hard concept to get our minds around. Now, that's not necessarily true for everybody because I know a lot of churchgoers. I know a lot of quote-unquote Christians. I know a lot of churches and pastors themselves who love talking about hell. In fact, if you go to their church uh, and you happen to be in one of those services and you don't feel worse than when you walked in, if you don't feel like you yourself are already on your way to hell, even though you've walked the aisle seven times and you don't feel more guilty than when you walked in, then you didn't have church. Now, that can be a little bit daunting. And I think as a, as a body of believers, we've done a pretty bad job representing and talking about this very real subject. This very honest subject. We, we, we think of hell and we think people who stand on the side of the corners holding up signs that tell other people that they're on their way to hell. And we sometimes on the inside, we either cringe or something inside of us stands up and says, yes. And if, you're, if your response is the latter, Jesus has some, some strong words for you. Did you know that the majority of the time that Jesus talked about hell and punishment, in fact, 13% of the time when Jesus taught on the subject of hell and punishment, of all of his teachings, he did it 13% of them. And all through the, the history, so Jesus talks a lot. 13% of the time Jesus opened his mouth, he was talking about hell, punishment, eternity, and, and judgment. He talked about these things quite a lot. But the majority of the time that he talked about them, he wasn't talking to the unbeliever. He was talking to the religious 
people. In other words, you would never really find Jesus standing on a street corner telling people who really don't believe in a God that they're on their way to hell. Is it a subject that we need to talk about? Absolutely. Are there some real authentic objections that people have as it relates, and some real questions and doubts and uncertainties as it relates to hell? Yes, people have those. And we need to answer them honestly, humbly, authentically, and with God's word. Do people who don't know Jesus and haven't submitted their will and their life to him, do they need to know the dangers and the, and the decision that they have already made and how they desperately need to turn their life to Jesus? Yes, absolutely we do. But I think that if we're honest and we look at this subject of hell, it's one that we're not really comfortable with even thinking about. It's one of those that we really have to wrestle and we stretch with and we think about a little bit because, because it, whether, whether we want to admit it or not, when we think about hell, and for many skeptics, for many people who don't believe in God, for people who are just kind of checking out faith and they're like, I don't know, what does this religion have to say about the afterlife? What does this religion have to say about the afterlife? And, and they're searching and they're trying to find out answers to what happens. I mean, is there anything that happens after I die? I mean, what, don't I just like cease to exist and like, do we all just become angels that sit on clouds and play our harps and wear diapers? And like, is that like what happens when I die? Like, we have real questions about these things. And we need to be able to answer those questions honestly, sincerely, and accurately. But that's not the only reason why I think this subject is important. A lot of times, though, even though it's an important subject, we kind of shy away from it because... In our minds, we have a hard time reconciling this idea, well, if God is loving, how could a loving God condemn people to such a terrible place? I don't know if you've ever asked that kind of a question or thought about that kind of a thing. How in the world can we think that God is all loving and at the same time there's such a horrible place reserved for so many people? If that is true, how do we reconcile this? And for us, this idea of a loving God and punishment just can't seem to coexist. And so we, 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 it's kind of a weird thing. And so we're just like, well, we're just not going to deal with that. We'll just talk about how good God is and loving God is and amazing God is. And he is all of, he is all of those things. But just because we don't like a subject doesn't mean it's not true. We don't really like to talk about hell. We don't really like the idea of thinking about punishment. We don't really like the idea that maybe somebody who we love desperately and dearly might spend eternity in hell. And they've already died. And there's nothing we can do about it now. Because when you take your last breath on this earth, there is nothing more that can be done. You've already made a decision one way or another. And that reality is something that we don't necessarily like. And because we don't like it, we just disregard it. But just because we don't like something doesn't mean it's not, not true. Doesn't mean it's not something that's hard to wrestle with. Doesn't mean it's not something that we need to take deep consideration and look at. In fact, for many people there uh, who, who would consider themselves skeptical and maybe even some of you that love God, have believed in God, are, 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 are know you're, you're, you're there and you know you're going to go to heaven. You put your faith in Jesus. Even for many of you, there are some questions still that you have about how, in fact, there are, there are really four main kind of objections that we as humans and even skeptics would have about hell. And I, I want to walk through them kind of quickly so we kind of catch up 
and kind of a, have a framework to kind of talk on for the rest of our, our time together. The first, the first real objection that we have, other than the fact that we just don't like it, is this idea that hell is just simply repulsive. The idea of torment and everlasting torment and why can't everybody just go to heaven like that idea just kind of repulses us. And, and one of the reasons why it repulses us is because it hits us right at home. Because if what we read in the Bible to be true, there are many people who die on a daily basis who are not going to be in heaven for all eternity. That breaks our heart. Breaks our heart that the people, it breaks my heart as a pastor to have to do funerals. And I've had to do a few in my day. Where unless some miraculous thing took place, as near as I could tell on this side, and although God is the eternal judge and he's the one alone who, who, is, who is able and capable and rightly can do the dividing between who's in and who's out, he alone knows whose name is written in what the Bible calls the Lamb's Book of Life for an old school biblical phrase some of you haven't heard in a long time. Like God alone knows what is in there and who's in and who's out. He alone knows that. But as near as I could tell, having to stand up there and do a funeral for somebody, that unless something amazing happened in their life, they likely were not in heaven. And to have to comfort families and see them wrestle with this idea of, wait a second. Like, surely they're in heaven. I mean, they, they did good. They, and this idea that because somebody was a good person that they could still somehow not make it into heaven just kind of repulses us on the inside. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that of all the Christian doctrines, the one I would most gladly remove is the doctrine of hell. And I tend to agree with him. I would love to be able to say that hell isn't real. I would love to be able to stand up here and say, don't worry, we're all going to make it to heaven. It's going to be wonderful. Just keep doing your best. Keep trying. And if, you, if it doesn't work out, then maybe somebody will earn and pay enough and do enough and somehow you'll get in. I'd love to be able to to tell you that there are people who die and have never been to hell. I wish I could tell you that, but I can't because I believe the Bible to be true. The author of uh, The Problem of God, the book, Mark Clark, he says this. One of the, the hardest doctrines for him when it came to his faith was the doctrine of hell. I was shocked by it because I recognized that the objections that I had about hell, they were all cultural objections. Born out of sensibilities and ideals that I held because I was a 21st century, white, middle-class, educated Westerner with all the accompanying perks that I am not even aware of at times. In other words, he was saying, most of my objections to hell as I really studied this out were all just cultural things that really had no foundation. See, because a lot of us, we get our idea of what is right and what is wrong from Grey's Anatomy and from shark take and from watching sitcoms on tv where in 30 minutes everything is nice and tidy and at the end of the day good people get good things and bad people get bad things and if you're not bad enough but you're still good and you're still doing these other things if you at least are sorry a little bit then then everything will be okay for you and we get our ideology around this idea of eternity from from our culture around us and somehow we're sitting there thinking well well surely that that isn't the case. Surely those things aren't the true, but, but the reality is even though we might be repulsed by hell, innate inside of you and innate inside of me is a cry for justice. 
Inside of you and inside of me, there is something, even though this idea repulses us, we can't ignore the fact that we cry for justice. Because when somebody stole your bike as a kid, justice needed to be done. Am I right? When somebody commits murder, everything inside of us says, no, 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 no. Justice needs to be done. And when a child is taken advantage of, when women become objectified, when we are constantly degrading and where we're anger gets the better of us and abuse takes place, we cry out and say, justice needs to be done. And so even though the idea of hell and punishment and, and judgment, even though it repulses us, innate inside of us is this convinced idea that man, justice needs to happen somehow, which, which kind of leads me to the second objection that a lot of people have about hell, and this, this is the second objection that many skeptics have as well, and that's the idea that, that hell, it's just unjust. It's not fair. It's not fair that some couldn't make it. If they pray a prayer and they believe in their heart right on their deathbed, it's not fair that they would make it to heaven when they spent their whole life sinning. It's not fair. It's not fair. I mean, they should sweat and have to really work to get to heaven, and I mean, come on, it's not fair. It's not fair that somebody who's committed the most heinous of crimes, if he actually repents in his heart and turns to the Lord, that God's actually going to forgive him. It's not fair that forgiveness is available for some people. It should only be available for me. And we don't like the idea that hell is actually part of God's justice, but we have a hard time wrestling with this, and we just feel like it's completely unjust. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this, and, you know, when I was a uh, my, my son, Micah, he's starting to, to play, play baseball. And uh, I'm really excited because I love baseball a lot. And uh, I'm trying to, like, not be that, like, really anxious, like, live through my kid dad. So I'm just kind of letting him go, go at his pace, and I'm helping him when he asks for help. And we're just, you know, little things here and there. But uh, this year, uh, he's playing coach pitch, right? So the machine is kind of pitching uh, to him. And uh, the reality is in baseball, Three strikes and you're, right, it's, it's the rules of baseball. Three strikes and, and you're out. And seeing these young kids up there at the plate and they're swinging and they're like, oh, look, at bless their heart, they really are trying. They're so cute in their helmets that are oversized for their little tiny heads. And oh, how precious. And just your heart as a parent, you're just so like, oh, that's great. They, they swung and they fouled it. Yay, Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. That was a throwback reference, wasn't it? <laughs> and, and they do such a good job, and you're so proud of them as a parent, and you're just so excited for them, but the reality is three strikes and they're out. That's the rules. And everything inside of you says, oh, that was so close. Give them another chance. Just one more chance. One more chance. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Because in our hearts, we think that would be the fair thing to do. But is it? Is that really helping them? Is that really what's best and most just for them? Because fast forward to when they're 22 and they're late to work seven times in one week. Yeah, just give me one more chance. I mean, I know I was late and I know it's my responsibility, but you don't understand I got stuck behind a train. And I'm late, and, and I, I know, I know, I know I said I was late because of the train yesterday, but today my coffee, it was spilled all over me, and I'm just, just one more chance, and, and we, 
Is that really helping them in the long run? When we start here and we just kind of bend the rules and bend the things, and if we just kind of, well, it's only three strikes if you're so tall, but if you're really short, we'll give you five strikes. Or if you're a girl, we'll let you have more. No, 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 rules are the rules. And it's when we have rules that we can understand what is actually fair. And when we have this idea of fairness that is actually in correlation with what is actually just, that's what we need. See, God is absolutely all loving. He's all compassionate. He's full of mercy and grace. He's slow to anger and he is completely just. And those statements are not contradicting one another. What Jesus did at the cross when he died and took your punishment and my punishment, when the sin of the world was laid upon him, the weight of the sin of the world was laid on his shoulders, that was justice. And when God grants you forgiveness and me forgiveness because we choose to believe in what Jesus did at the cross, that's called mercy. God is both fully just and fully merciful. Somebody say amen. And we think that hell is just unjust, it's unfair, it's not right, but the reality is it, he truly is just. He is truly merciful. And who would you rather have pronouncing the verdict of just and unjust? Who would you rather have as the ultimate judge? Somebody like me that falls prey to comparative judgment or somebody who's absolutely perfect, who knows the heart of every man, who knows the motives behind, who knows the full context of their story, who can pronounce justice in a way that is fully righteous? who is never faulty in his judgment, who is slow to anger. I would much rather have God be the judge than me be the judge. Because if it were up to me, all y'all. Kidding. Just this half of the room. I would much rather have a God who is all loving, who is all knowing, who, who made the ultimate sacrifice, who alone is worthy to be called judge. And so I don't think that we could simply say hell is unjust because I actually believe that is, if there are no rules, if there is no final stop, if, if the rules are constantly changing for everybody, then that is not justice either. It's true, narrow is the gate that gets into heaven, but that gate is open to anybody who chooses to walk through it. You get to heaven the same way I get to heaven. It's the same for everybody. Why? Because the standard doesn't move and it doesn't fluctuate with how God is feeling that day. If he's had his coffee in the morning or not. And if he got in a fight with his teenage son Jesus recently. Like, like that doesn't change God's mood towards you. And so I believe God is fully just. The third objection that a lot of people have is this, that hell is just God's torture chamber. Hell is just a big torture chamber for God. And this was one that I really had to kind of walk through and wrestle uh, because it really challenged some, some assumptions that I've had my entire life about hell growing up in the church. See, because the way a lot of people see hell is that we are just like giant life-size marshmallows that God constantly is roasting the evil ones over a fire called hell. And like, ah, look, it's on fire, like my kids do with marshmallows. Like, 
we have this picture that God is up there like literally poking people with a pitchfork and sticking them over the fire and be like, ha, 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 you should have been to church more. Ha, 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 you didn't think like that. Ha, ha. Like, God's not doing, that's not who God is. Now, that wasn't a presupposed idea, but what was kind of a presupposed idea is the idea that we have that hell is, I heard descriptions all my life that hell is full of fire, that hell is uh, uh, eternal, and, and I do believe that to be true, that, that there's worms that crawl in and out of you, and there's gnashing of teeth that's happening all the time, and, and, and it never dies, and it's constant agony, and, and it sounded very, very torturous to me. And many of you have heard that same description of hell, and it's, it's what really scares us. It's what really puts fear in our hearts, but the, the thing of it is, is that every time Jesus talked about hell, and this was the thing that I really had to wrestle with this weekend as, as I studied, every time Jesus talks about hell, he was using metaphors and apocalyptic language. In other words, he was using very descriptive language to point to something that is very real, but he wasn't giving you exact details. It's apocalyptic language. In other words, it's, so when he talks about like gnashing of teeth, throughout the Bible, gnashing of teeth always meant anger. And where worms were, that means there was actually something that had died. There was some death at play there. Darkness represented like this eternal punishment. Uh, weeping always represented suffering in the Bible. And so Jesus would use these language to paint a picture for us to try and help us understand, kind of like an allegory, kind of like when, when they wrote, when Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, right? Like nobody read Lord of the Rings and was like, I've got to find Mount Mordor. I got to find this place. Like, where is the ring? I really want to, like nobody watched those movies, read those books and was like, this thing is real. I've got to find this place. Why? Because it was just literature. It was painting a picture a lot of what was written by Tolkien points to something very real. It has an allegory and has parallels to real spiritual life. That's why he wrote what he wrote and how he wrote what he wrote. But apocalyptic language, and it's all through the Bible as well. It's all through the Bible. And so Jesus wasn't trying to talk to us about hell in a way that gave us exact detail but he was trying to give us a description so that we could grasp and understand the, the, the brevity and we could understand the weight and we could understand the severity and we could understand a little bit better. And he had to use language that we would understand and grab a hold of that would help us understand a little bit. The Bible says that God's thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. In other words, there are things in heaven. Let me give you this one for, for, for an example. Jesus says that in my Father's house are many mansions, right? He's using poetic language. Like, I don't know that there are actual literal mansions that we all get to party and hang out and hit beach balls up in. Like, it, he's painting a picture that it's an amazing place, but he had to use language that we would understand because some of the things that are in heaven are well beyond our description and understanding and grasps right now. And Jesus was doing the same thing with hell. Now, Pastor, are you telling me that hell isn't like a real place and it's not torture, but it really is the party? No, 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 no. Hell is very much a real place. And it is absent of anything that is good. It is a place that you will absolutely weep and be sorrowful that you exist and live in. 
It is a full realization. Hell is a full realization of anything good, godly, and true. Take the most angry actions of a human being that you would ever feel and multiply it by 10, and that is what it would perhaps feel like a little bit. See, all through the Bible, Jesus would use this language. The Bible uses it in a lot of different places. Another place where it uses kind of this, this language is when it says that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Right, like that wasn't a detailed, literal description of Jesus. In other words, when you get to heaven, it's not like Jesus popped right out of Narnia and is half lamb, half man. No, no, it was a metaphor. It was an analogy to kind of help us get what Jesus was, was doing. Another place it says that Jesus shows up and he has a sword in his mouth. It's not that Jesus can't talk because he has like a, a little sword like clenched in his teeth. No. It's just trying to tell us that God's word, which we know the Bible is the sword, the sword is God's word. So all it's trying to tell us is that God, out of Jesus' mouth comes the word of God. That's all it's trying to paint a picture for us in. And so to think that hell is some just tortured chamber because of the descriptions that Jesus gave isn't quite accurate. It isn't quite what it, that objection really doesn't stand up because again, while hell is a place that nobody should want to go, while it's something that I can't even really fathom or imagine, all I'm left with are the descriptions that Jesus gave, and those descriptions don't point me to anything that says, yeah, I want to go there. But is it going to actually be a place where worms are crawling in and out of your ears? I, I mean, it's possible. I mean, God can do anything. It's possible. I just don't know that it's 100% likely that that's the exact way that that's going to go down. Is it a place anybody should want to go? No. No. It is unimaginably a horrific experience. How do you know that? Because Jesus said that it was an absolutely horrific experience. And while I don't believe it's just some tortured chamber, I do believe it's a place that none of us should ever want to go. Here's the fourth objection that a lot of people have about hell. And that's this. It's just overkill. It's just overkill. In other words, the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. I mean, why would we have to spend eternity paying for sins that were committed in a, in a lifespan of 60 years? I mean, it doesn't quite seem equal, does it? I mean, why would I have to spend eternity paying a penalty for something that within a finite amount of time was committed? It doesn't seem to add up. It doesn't equal those things. It just seems a little bit overkill. The problem is that's not how justice works, is it? Just because it takes you 60 seconds to commit a crime doesn't mean the punishment needs to be the exact length of time, is it? It only takes you 30 seconds to pull the trigger and murder somebody, or less if you're really good at it, I suppose. But it doesn't mean that you only need 30 seconds of punishment. It's not amount of time. It's about the weight of the offense. It's about the weight of the offense. And it's not just about the weight of the offense based on what you feel like is right and what I feel like is right. No, it's the weight of the offense against the weight of justice, the weight of the law, the weight of what our court systems say is right or wrong. I know you don't feel like going 66 
in a 60 is that big of a deal. But according to the law, six miles over the speed limit is called what? It's good to confess things at church. It really is. It's good for your soul. And, and that's, that's really where we get into trouble is because we're constantly trying to compare my, this isn't that bad. I mean, come on, there are people who are going 70 in the 60. I'm just going 66 trying to pass grandma who doesn't know where 60 is on her speedometer. I mean, come on. There's reasons why. And we live in this comparison world where we're trying to compare our stuff to other people's stuff. And it just, that's not how justice works, is it? It's about the weight of the fence. See, the problem is, the problem is this, we spend our time trying to rationalize and justify our quote-unquote mistakes. All the while, Almighty God is waiting for us to recognize and repent from our sins. It's so, it's so crazy in our world, we so rationalize and downplay this stuff so much, we can't even call sin a sin, we just like to call it a mistake. The last time you apologized to somebody for doing them wrong, did you say, hey, I was wrong. Will you forgive me because I sinned against you? Well, I just didn't make a good choice. Like when was the last time you admitted to somebody that you sinned against them? But yeah, we do it all the time, don't we? We don't like to call sin, sin. We don't like to think of it that way. Why? Because in our mind, sin is the big deal that sends us to hell. In our minds, we, we think that what I did isn't nearly as bad as what they did, but what they did is way, way worse. Therefore, they should pay the price. They should have a strict penalty. They shouldn't make it to heaven. But I, I should. We don't get to compare and change what is measured against. See, part of it is we have this skewed view of what justice really is. We have a skewed view of justice in our, in our lives. Uh, in other words, in, when Jesus and when they talked about justice, there's an image, we even use it today in our culture, uh, we talk about the scales of justice, don't we? That's that, that whole scale where you have one side, one side, and kind of which one weighs the more, that's the one, whichever side outweighs the other, that's how the scales of justice are tipped, in favor or against, Right? That's kind of the, the imagery. Well, that's exactly what the Bible is using, that same literary understanding when it talks about justice. The weight of what you've done versus the weight of what the law says, if it outweighs one or the other, that's how you know if you are going to be justified or not. And, and we don't, we, 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 what we try and do is, is kind of do it like this. We um, kind of like to play... One, one verse the other. Here's what we like to do. On, uh, on one side, see, we've got these, uh, where's the start of this duct tape? There it is. Um, on one side, we like to say, here it is. These are, these are our bad acts, right? These are the bad things that we've done. We lied, we stole, we, we, uh, we didn't make it home on time for work like we promised our wife that we would, and we ended up sleeping on the couch. They were bad, bad news, bad Bad decisions, right? These are bad choices. We, we got a little too drunk and got tipsy, and it wasn't, it wasn't a good thing. We didn't mean to get drunk, but we didn't really have self-control either, and so we have all these bad 
things on one side of, 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 of the scale or on one side of things we try and put our bad. And on the other side, we have all of our good deeds, right? This is how we think about justice, right? This is how we view it. And on this side, we have all of the good things. We went to church. We gave more than 10%. There was not nearly enough amens on that. Apparently, none of you are that good. <laughs> Kidding. I read my Bible twice in a week, right? Like I, I didn't cuss out the person who totally rang up my grocery order incorrectly. I didn't get upset when they cut me off. I just smiled and let them on through on the road. Like I've done some good things in my life. I, I served at my local, uh, you know, needed, I gave donated food. I gave people rides when they needed it. I sent them flowers when they lost a loved one. I've done a lot of good. And we, we think that if we can put more in the basket of good than we have in the basket of bad, we'll be okay. But what we're doing is comparing our good with our bad, hoping that our good outweighs us and outweighs it. And if we can tip the scale of justice to the side of we've done enough good, then we'll make it to heaven. And we say this about people when they die, don't they? They were a good person. And they may have been. And they may have been. But that's not how the scales, scales go. And, and we put the wrong things oftentimes in the wrong baskets anyways. See, because what we, what the Bible calls sin is, is actually an archery term. Now, I'm not a, I don't bow hunt. I don't really hunt at all. I hunt golf balls every once in a while. But we don't like to talk about that time. But the word sin is actually an archery term. It just simply means to miss the mark. Can you imagine a big, big target? If I were to take a shot and to shoot it and completely miss the target, you would all say, under your breath, because you're very nice people, that was a bad shot. That wasn't a very good shot. But if I were to take another arrow and to shoot it and to hit the target, not quite bullseye, but I mean, I didn't miss it this time, you would say, hey, that was a pretty good shot. But the problem is that anything outside of hitting the dead bullseye perfect in the middle is considered sin. You don't hit it dead on in the middle. That's a sin. It just means to miss the mark. Yeah, you missed the mark. You missed the mark. You missed the mark. You missed the mark. And so what we put in our bad versus our good oftentimes still isn't even right because it's not about good versus bad. We don't get to measure our good versus our bad. Here's what we, have to, here's what we actually have to do. We have to measure it differently. We have to measure it because what God does, the way justice works, the way it really, really goes is that we measure good versus bad against the laws of righteousness. And it's not just our bad versus what is right in the world. It's both our bad and our good against what is the law of righteousness. Against what God says is right. Against absolutely dead center perfect every single time. A life without mistake, without anything. It was perfect. That is the law of righteousness. And anything that falls short of, anything that is empty compared to what is in the law of righteousness, the weight of the offense is still not enough. Why? Because 
you can't live that life, can you? You can't live that life. I want to I read to you something out of Romans chapter 10. It, it jumped off the pages. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 2, it says, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God, and instead they sought to establish their own. They sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, he's saying they, had, they knew what God's righteousness was. The people of God, religious people, the Jews is what he's talking about specifically. People that went to church every Sunday, people that were there, whether they knew it or not, this was the law, the law of righteousness, God's righteousness. That was the standard that everything had to be measured and weighed against. But instead of taking God's righteousness, they took their own self-righteousness. My own good deeds, my own bad deeds, my own good efforts versus my own bad efforts. And they took their own self-righteousness rather than God's righteousness. In other words, they chose not to submit to God's righteousness in their lives. Friends, the thing that gets you in instead of out the thing that answers the question, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell, is not if you can live by your own righteousness better or equal to the law of God's righteousness. I've got news for you. You can't and I can't. It will outweigh you every single time. It will outweigh you every single time. Paul, Paul goes on to write in Romans. I love what it says. It says, verse 8, but what... What does it say then? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is what the message concerning faith. In other words, let me tell you what faith in God is all about. Let me boil it down. It's not about your self-righteousness compared to God's righteousness. That's not, the, that's not what faith is. That's not salvation. He goes on to say, verse 9, and many of you have heard this many, many times. I'm going to bring it in a different context. Verse 9, if you declare with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. This word believe is when we allow our heart to be postured in a way that our obedience moves us towards faith in Jesus versus away. In other words, if we can live in a way that doesn't say it's our righteousness versus God's righteousness, but if we can live in a way that says, you know what I believe? I believe that I'm not good enough. I believe that my good things are not even what my bad things equal, but it doesn't really matter because it's not about my good deeds. It's not about my bad deeds. It's about Jesus came and he took my place. It's Jesus stepped up on the scale and said, hey, hey, you're not righteous enough, but I'm righteous enough. I didn't sin, and he who knew no sin became sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's not about your good and your bad trying to stack up against God. Your self-righteousness will send you straight to hell, friends. But it's when you put your faith in what Jesus said. If you'll put your faith and say, no, Jesus says, I'll step up on the scale for you. I'll take your place. I'll become your propitiation. That's a big biblical word that means I'll swap your spot. And he stands and he takes your spot on the scale and says, now weigh it out. Is it my righteousness versus God's righteousness? Yes, you're in. 
But if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus took your place, that it's not your good and it's not your bad that measure up against God. It's all of Jesus and none of you versus God's righteousness. For by grace, Ephesians says, you have been saved through faith, not of works. Otherwise, you'll start boasting in your self-righteousness. And that was the problem Jesus had with religious people. That's why in Matthew 7, he talks about, you do all these things on the outside, but I don't even know you. Why? Because they were stacking their good deeds up against the law of righteousness. And Jesus was saying, it doesn't measure up. I don't even know you. I don't even know you. Jesus preached redemption to the unreligious. But he warned the religious of rebellious living. He warned them of don't live your life trying to fulfill your own righteousness because it will never measure up. Don't do it. It won't work. It won't work. You can come to church all you want, friends. You can have understanding about God all you want. The Bible says to believe that Jesus exists is on par with every demon in hell because the demons themselves believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They, they understand that. They have understanding and knowledge that Jesus is that. They've just never allowed Jesus to get on the scale for them. I mean, they know that Jesus is who he said he was. They're just indifferent to him. They're just still trying to do it on their own. They're still trying to be their own right person. They're still trying to clean up their act as if cleaning up your act will get it better on the scale. No, no. That's why your brokenness isn't a problem for Jesus. That's why your sin isn't a problem for Jesus. It's not your sin that will send you to hell, friends. It's your indifference to who Jesus is and what he's done for you and your unwillingness to allow Jesus to get on the scale for you that if you die choosing not to believe, choosing not to allow Jesus to take your place, choosing not to believe that Jesus is enough, that is the thing. If you live your life like all the religious people that Jesus encountered that says, I'm good enough, I've got my own righteousness, we live according to the right thing, we never do anything wrong, we don't cuss, we don't smoke, and we don't go with girls who do, we'll be okay. And it's not. It's not. It's about allowing Jesus to get on the scale for you. And choosing to believe that, that he is. And when you confess with your mouth, you're standing and saying, no, I'm not on the scale anymore. It's Jesus. I can't be condemned anymore because Jesus is there. Jesus is the one who saved me. Jesus is the one who heals me. Jesus is the one who forgave my sins. Jesus is the one who took the place. Jesus took the punishment for you and for me. Jesus did that. I don't have to stand in my own righteousness, in my own rightness. The Bible says when we put our faith in Jesus, we now become in Christ. In other words, if I could, I'd take all these boxes, our good and our bad, and I'd swallow it up in the box of Jesus. Why? Because that's what it literally means to put your faith in him, to take all of your good and bad and put it in Jesus. And that's what brings you eternal life. Hell doesn't have to be a problem for you. 
you just got to stop living by your own self-righteousness and trust what Jesus did is enough. It's enough. It's enough. It's enough. And when you have that belief, it causes you to step towards him again and again and again. Not away from him because you're afraid that it won't measure up or your sin might be too big. It's not too big. He's enough. He is enough for you. And if you will put your faith, don't miss this, in Jesus, you won't be left out. Will you stand with me? Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? I'm gonna ask that nobody be looking around and unless you absolutely have to, please don't be moving in this moment. Just stand right where you're at. I wanna ask you a very real question. You may have been in church your entire life. You might have even been afraid of hell. But you've still been living by your own righteousness and your own good deeds and your own works. And you've been trying to do it on your own. But today, you've had a light bulb go off and say, no, 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 it's not about me anymore. It's about letting Jesus get on the scale for me to take my place. And you say, I want Jesus to take my place today. If that's you, I want you to lift your hand in the air right now. I want to pray with you. Say, I want Jesus to take my place. Thank you, 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 thank you. I know many people, many, many of you, thank you. Friends, can we all pray this prayer together? Say, dear God, I come to you not on my own merits, not on my good deeds, and not based on my bad deeds, but I come in faith, believing that Jesus died for me, that he paid the price for my sin, dying on the cross for me. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I put my faith I put my life in him today. Make me new on the inside. Cleanse me of my sins. Thank you for forgiving me. I love you, Lord.